Poetics meeting, and it was uh, it was encouraging, it was inspiring. We all find ourselves in places, in situations in our life. There are things that happen to us that some are of consequences of our own doing, of our own choices, and some are consequences of other people's choices. But how we respond to those things determines whether the work of God will be done in us and how it will be done through us and how the name of God will be glorified through us or in our lives. So this is the series that I'm doing and concluding today called Moments of Decision. Every one of us comes to a place where we must make a choice. Many choices. And we've looked, this is the third character we've looked at from Scripture, of someone who <clears throat> was confronted with a situation and had to make a choice. And how they responded to that situation determined what their legacy was, what they left behind, and what has come down to us about those people to this day. So I want to look at one other person today, the person Moses that Nathan read about in that scripture portion. Moses, we find in chapter 3 of Exodus, was on the backside of the desert, as the King James Version describes it. He was up in in the boonies in the desert. And he was out there taking care of sheep. Now, if you know the story of Moses, you know the way he got there was that he had been a prince in Egypt. He was not just a person in Egypt. He was a prince among many in Egypt. And he was there in Egypt as a prince because God had put him in that position. But now we find him at a place in the desert, nearing 80 years old. And he's at this place because of a choice he made. He had determined that he was going to help God do God's work. Not a bad thing to determine, but he determined that he was going to do it his way. And so he was in the desert taking care of sheep as a consequence of a choice he made in Egypt. And he had to run away to rescue, to spare his life. So that's where we meet Moses. As Moses is with the sheep in the desert, quite a step down from being a prince in Egypt, he is noticing that not a lot happens out there. You take care of sheep, you watch them, and you care for them and protect them as needed. But one day something unusual happened, highly unusual. He saw a bush that burst into flame. Now it's my understanding that that does occasionally happen in that place. But this bush burst into flame but didn't burn up. It just continued to burn and burn and burn. And so in the scripture passage it said, Moses said, well, I'm going to go and see this. I'm going to go and take a look. I'm going to examine this. I'm going to study this a little bit closer. And so he went over to look at this bush. And as he approached the bush, a voice began to speak to him. This day was getting, as Alice in Wonderland said, curiouser and curiouser. Strange things were happening. You would have to say that when God is at work, strange things begin to happen. 
and unusual things happen because God is not bound by the rules of nature. He set the rules of nature. He can break the rules of nature anytime he wants. And so he overruled the rules of nature that fire consumes and he let this fire keep burning to get the attention of Moses. There was a church in a neighborhood that uh, didn't have much of a reputation for being a warm and welcoming place. And one day, the building caught on fire. It began to burn, and as the people um, began to gather, the firemen came, and they were, they were working on it and putting out the fire. And one of the neighbors poked one of the other ones. She said, you know, for years, I thought that it would be great if God would just catch that place on fire. Of course, I don't think that's what she meant originally in her thinking. She wanted the people to catch on fire with the Spirit of God. But the symbolism was there for her to see it. God wants the church to catch on fire. God wants the church to burn with a sense of the holiness of God and he wants the people of God to, to run after him and to serve him with all of their power and all of their might. But there's something that seems to get in the way. Something that seems to get in the way. As Kerwin shared in his testimony there, there's some way he viewed the world because of growing up in the family that he grew up in. And his father's sin made him think that he was not able to do or not going to do some things. But praise God, God turned things around. He met Jesus. He met God and the fire caught a hold of his soul. And now he is a man of God and he is a husband and he is going to determine he's determined that he will preach and that God has called him to preach the word of God and that's the power of God that's what happens when you meet God and you meet the power of God and God's fire catches in your soul so we look at this scripture passage and we see Moses now at a great turning point in his life and in his life there are three turning points just like as it were with Abraham when we looked at Abraham uh, when Moses grew up in Egypt. He was there until he was about 40 years old. Then he ran away to the desert. And we're going to see why he did that. And he was in the desert for 40 years. And then God used him for 40 years leading the people of Israel. He had what we would call a rich and full life, 120 years old. But when God called Moses, even though he had been well equipped to be a leader of men, God, Moses responded with, Excuses, fear. The same thing often happens in the church of Jesus Christ, that God calls individuals and says, I'd like you to work here. I want you to work with these children. I want you to work in the nursery. I want you to work teaching children in grade school. And we come up with a long list of why we can't do it, why we can't do it. Kind of like the butts from the women's retreat, but not exactly like that. So I want to look at this passage again, and there are several things that we have to, to understand. Worship is a dangerous experience. You come here week after week. I hope you come week after week and you don't think that you come once a month and that's a good thing. You've done God a favor. But you come here week after week after week and you come prepared for what? Expecting what? Do you have any expectations? Is it just because you're supposed to do it? Worship is a dangerous thing. When you come and worship the living God, as Moses was discovering, you're in dangerous territory. You're in a place where the unexpected happens. And yet you come to church week after week after week, and you gather together and you sing songs, and you go home and you go, ah, 
and nothing. Why is that? Because we don't consider that worship is dangerous and that God speaks to us when we are here. We often don't listen. Moses could have gone on. He could have said, well, that's a burning bush. I've seen that before. Let's move on, sheep. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. But he didn't. He stopped. And he heard from God. When Moses met God, it changed him for the rest of his life. And the shockwaves of the events of that day are felt to this day. In culture after culture around the world, Moses' response to the calling of God changed history for all time and set up the stage for the coming of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. There's a woman, an author named Annie Dillard, and in a book called Teaching a Stone to Talk, she says this, Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. I love that. Worship is dangerous. Moses was discovering how dangerous worship is when you have an interaction, a personal interaction with the living God. It changes your life and it changes the lives of the people all around you. Wherever God is at work, he calls someone to do it. Notice I said wherever God is at work, not whenever God is at work. Jesus assured the people who had gathered around him in John chapter 5. He said, my father is still working and I am also working. Another translation said, my father is always at work. There is never a time, there is never a millisecond that goes by that God is not at work. God is at work everywhere, all the time. You might not be aware of it. You might not be paying attention. But God is at work all the time. Now that awareness changes so much for us all. God is at work. If God is at work doing something, and if he is that powerful God, that extraordinary God that has no limits, then what would happen next? What could happen next? God is at work all the time. The Bible is filled with the records of people called by God. When you read through scripture, the thing that attracts us all to this is the stories of real live people. This is not just some text written by some professor somewhere that's cold and analytical and, and clearly logical, that, that it's just there. It's just word after word after word, paragraph after paragraph, and, it, and you just feel your eyes glazing over as you look at, read it. No, you get drawn into the story of Scripture. As you read the story of Scripture, you find people just like you and I. And you find their responses and their stories fascinate us. We teach the Bible stories to children in Sunday school because they grab the attention of young lives. And adults have the same response to the story of people in Scripture. And so we find the records of people called by God in Scripture to do something extraordinary. We find a man named Noah who was called to build a ship in anticipation of a flood. 
when it had never rained before. We find a man named Abraham who's called to leave his home and everything familiar to him and go to a place not yet designated, but to go. We find a man named Joseph who is called to suffer, be treated grossly unjust, with gross injustice, and God did it in preparation to rescue his whole family, the very people who were despising him. A woman named Rahab was called to hide the spies of Israel. And so in her obedience to God, God rescued her whole family when the city of Jericho fell. A woman named Deborah was called to be a wartime leader in Israel and to set the example and to give courage to the troops. A man named David was called to be king in the place of Saul. But first he was hunted as an outlaw and feared for his life. A woman named Esther was called to rescue her people by putting her own life at stake, going before the king which was forbidden and making a request of him. She responded to the call of God. We most recently studied a man named Hosea. God called him to marry a woman whose heart and motives were impure, whose desire was not for him, and he obeyed. All of these people obeyed because they were all called by God. And I don't think we should fall into the trap of thinking, well, how many people are talked about in Scripture? Let's number them and name them, and then say, well, good, that's the limit of what God did. No. God is always at work, at every time, in every place, and he is at work, he wants to be at work in your life now. He wants to change you, he wants to lead you, he wants to move you. He called you. If you are a child of God today, he called you to trust in his son as your savior. He called you to be adopted as his child. He calls you to service in God's kingdom. God doesn't request such things as serving him he drafts you he calls you into places that you never expected to go and so we look at a man today named Moses a man who thought he was something but then he came in contact with God and he found out he was not what he thought he was and God changed him the other thing that we discover about this long list of people that God called and we find their stories in scripture we discover that God calls ordinary people most commonly. The people that he calls stand out to us. But they were just like you and I until God called them and until they responded. God calls ordinary people. They were surprised when God spoke to them. They were all fearful. They were all reluctant. Everyone. You don't find people saying, hey, yeah, let's go. Let's do this, God. They're all saying, whoa, what are you asking of me? That's scary. They're going to get mad. Read about Jeremiah. Jeremiah's whole family, his whole town, everybody turned against him. They kept saying, there's that Jeremiah. We should kill him. He's saying bad stuff. We don't like what he's saying. He's discouraging us. We should kill him. That's not a way to walk around home. That's not the way to be in your hometown. But that's what God called Jeremiah to. And when Jeremiah was called, he said, I'm just a child. What do I know about this stuff? Confronting people, people of authority. The fact that you are ordinary enables God to be glorified in you. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in his first letter. He said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. 
standards. Not many were powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And God had a purpose in doing all of that. His great purpose was this, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There will be no one who is able to come before God in heaven and say, Boy, you, when you pick me, you pick the right guy. There will be no one able to say that. God chooses the weak, he chooses the foolish, he chooses those who are nothing, in order that he might gain the glory. So if you say to yourself, who am I? I'm nothing. Praise God. Now he can use you. God calls ordinary people. If you are extraordinarily self-confident, filled with pride, God cannot use you. Because you want the glory for yourself. He is determined that all things will bring glory to him. Well, let's look now in chapter 3 of Exodus as we look at Moses. And five responses to the calling of God, to this encounter with God with this flaming bush. And first God told him, take off your shoes, take off your sandals, because you're on holy ground. When you're in the presence of God, even if it's out in the middle of the desert, even if it's, it's not in a fancy building, you're just out there in the middle of nowhere, and God begins to talk to you, you're on holy ground, wherever you are. Moses thought, well, this is just sandy, scruffy ground. God said, it's holy ground because I'm here. Wherever God speaks to you, it's holy ground. Don't ever despise any place and say, well, God can't talk to me here. God speaks in many, many places. The first response that Moses had when God called him was one of excitement, I think. God said, I'm going to deliver the people of Israel. And you could see Moses saying, yes, yes, that's, that's what you said you were going to do. Yes, you should do it. Then he said, I want you to leave the people. And all of a sudden, all the enthusiasm stopped. Moses said, what do you mean? Me? Don't you remember how I got here? Don't you know the story, how I got to the desert? Don't you know who I am? And of course, God knew the answer to all of those questions. God said, I'm going to bring my people out of slavery to a, man, a land flowing with milk and honey. I have heard the cry of my people, God said. I've seen the oppression. And now I'm sending you to Pharaoh. I'm sending you to bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And in verse 11, we find the first response that Moses has to this great calling. He says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? This is insecurity. The first response when God calls us is insecurity. Who, who am I? What do I know? I mean, well, what's, what's so special about me? Couldn't you use somebody else better than me? This comes from a lack of a clear self-assessment in the presence of God. Now, you and I should always be insecure in certain ways. We should never be fully self-confident because then we will never be God-confident. But we should assess who God has made us to be. God has given every one of you different talents, different abilities, and he's given you, as a child of God, spiritual gifts. And he's given those things to you so that you can serve others. He's given them to you 
so that you can serve others in this world and bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ. This insecurity came from an awareness of Moses' past failures. Moses was out in the desert tending his father-in-law's sheep because he had tried to deliver the people of Israel by his own strength. When he discovered that God, uh, that he was of the people of Israel, and he went out, it says, tells us in Exodus chapter 2, about one day he saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating an Israelite. And Moses, it says, looked this way, and he looked that way, and he grabbed the guy, and he killed him. And then he buried him in the sand. And he thought, well, God's going to deliver this people, and here I am. Then the next day he saw two Israelites fighting, and he went to them. And he said, hey, guys, break it up, break it up, what are you doing? And one of them said to, the, uh, to him, so what are you going to do, kill me like you did the Egyptian? And Moses came undone inside. He could feel all of his personal, his self-confidence, all of his, his uh, just security running away. And that's what he did. He ran away. He knew that what he had done was known. He knew that the word was out. And that he was in deep trouble. And to save his life, he ran. He ran to the desert. And it's in the desert where God met him after God retaught him so many things. The insecurity of Moses came from past failures. He knew that he had failed. He had failed grossly. He had murdered a man in order to do something he thought was going to help God. And because he knew that he had failed, when God came to him and said, I want you to go, I'm sending you, he said, who am I? Now, I, I would imagine if I took a survey here, and if I asked everyone who had failed to raise their hands, I think every hand would go up. If not, I would want to meet with you afterwards because uh, you're not facing the reality of life. All of us have failed to some extent in some way, large and small. We've all failed. That doesn't mean God can't use us. That means we need the power of God in our life if we are ever going to do anything for him. This insecurity came from a positional assessment. The descendants of Israel were now a nation of slaves. How can slaves set themselves free? Later, Gideon would ask a similar question when the angel of the Lord appeared to him and told him, I want you to raise an army against Midian. Who am I? Who are our people? We are not a strong tribe. We are not a great people. We don't have the reputation of some kind of dynasty. We're just ordinary people. Well, God answered this excuse. God answered the excuse with the assurance that Moses would not go alone into this task. You look at God's answer in verse 12. But I will be with you. And really, that was the end of the argument. I will be with you. But God, for Moses' sake, said, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you some evidence about it. But this is a prophetic evidence. He said, I'm sending you to Pharaoh, and after you've done that, after you've done what I have said you're going to do, you're going to bring the people of Israel back here, and you're going to worship God here. He gave Moses a sign. He gave him assurance that he would not go 
alone, wherever he is being sent by God. Have you ever asked God, who am I? Have you ever said that to God? Someone asked you to teach in Sunday school, you say, well, who am I? I mean, what do I know about teaching children? Someone asks you to lead something else, and, and you say, well, who am I? God promised that he would never leave him. It's repeated again in the New Testament, I will never leave you or forsake you. If God is calling you to do something, and your response is, who am I? My question to you is, which part of never do you not understand? God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Never. So that day when you're standing before children for the first time and you're teaching them and you're terrified because you, you don't know what's going to happen that day, God said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Never. He's called you to something, and as he calls you, he will go with you. Who am I? And the answer is, you're nobody. But God is God. Secondly, Moses had another response. Verse 13, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Which, when you think about it, sounds like a very strange answer. doesn't sound like he actually answered the question, but he really did. And God said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you, has sent me to you. God also said to the people of Moses, to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. He is I am. He is always in the present. He's not I was or I will be. Yet he is all of those things at the same time. He was, he is, and he will be, but he always lives in the present. God is always, I am. And he says, I am that I am. He is self-existent. He doesn't exist because someone wills him into existence. He exists because he is God. And he wills all else into existence. When Moses said this, he was dealing in ignorance. He said, you know, I don't really know you all that well. And that was a true statement. Who am I going to tell the people of Israel that has sent me to them? Why should they listen to me? And he had an ignorance of God that he had to find out. He had to learn about God. He had to learn who God is and relearn who God is all over again. He had to review what God had done to this point in the nation of Israel's history. And that's why, even though they were not yet called a nation, they were a people gathered together, and God identified himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, he is the one who is over them, and he who did not change, who worked in those forefathers, does not change, will not change, cannot change, and he will always, always, always be with you. That's a frightening prospect. Sometimes we find ourselves at points in our lives where we are facing things that have great unknowns, great unsettledness. Jan and I are standing in one of those places now. In just a few weeks, all that has been safe and secure for us, all that has been routine for us in many ways, although very frightening almost every step of the way, um, will change. 
And when it does, we will have to discover, we are discovering all over again, that the same God that called this body together out of just a couple of people who didn't know anything, except we began to know God, that same God is still at work. The same God that built us and sustained us for 30 years is still able to build us and sustain us no matter where he sends us. And there's kind of a sense of anticipation like, ooh, it's going to happen again? Could we be a part of something like that again? Your confidence in the word of God is built on your experience with the word of God and with the action of God. And so as you step into new unknowns in life, you find that God has already provided you with your experience with him that gives you the confidence to trust him for the next thing. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I saw them. I cared for them. I'm going to care for you. If you have never allowed God to get you into a place where you have to trust him deeply, you will never rely upon him wholly. We live in an era, an era of purchased security. We buy insurance for our house, for our life, for our car, for our health, for our job, for accidents. And yet all of this can fail us. All of this can fail us. Yet we have confidence in those things. And if we transfer our hope to those things in the moment of crisis, when you discover that those things are not sufficient to carry you, then you will not know how to depend upon God because you'll be forced into a situation that you've not experienced yet. I'm not saying to dump your insurance. I'm saying to increase your assurance with God and in God. There was a church meeting one time where a man, a very wealthy man, rose to tell the rest of the people gathered there about his faith. And he started out this way. He said, I am a millionaire, and I attribute it all to the rich blessings of God in my life. I remember that turning point in my faith. I had just earned my first dollar, and I went to a church meeting that night. The speaker was a missionary who told about his work. I knew that I had only one dollar bill and had to either give it all to God's work or nothing at all. So at that moment, I decided to give my whole dollar to God. I believe that God blessed that decision, and that is why I am a rich man today. He finished, and there was a silence in the church. There was kind of an odd silence as he moved toward his seat. And as he sat down, there was a little old lady sitting in the same row. And she leaned over to him and she said, I dare you to do it again. Do you ever find yourself in a place like that? Will you say that God has richly blessed me and brought me to this place? And I'm going to turn it all back to him again. And I'm going to trust him all over again to do a work in my life and through me. God's had, God had, had an answer for Moses at this time. Verse 14, uh, essentially he said, I'm, I never change. I never change. That's the immutability of God. That's what the theological term is. He is unchangeable. The way you remember the immutability is he does not mutate. He's not this kind of God one day and this kind of God another day. He is unchangeable. He is fixed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Everything you and I know on earth changes. Everything 
changes. Uh, you and I have experienced this. Uh, we've watched the seasons come and go. We watch our own lives change. I've been here for 30 years and I've got to see a lot of changes in people. Uh, there are all kinds of changes. You might be taller, you might be shorter than you were, you might be wider, you might be narrower than you were, you might be darker, you might be lighter than you were. You might be hairier or you might be balder. You might be older and you never get younger, but God never changes. You change, but God never changes. Because he does not change, you can rely upon his promises. God said, I'm going to bring the people of Israel out. And he goes on and talks about what he's going to do and, he, and the way he's going to do it. And when he does it, he says, I'm going to bring you out with wealth. You were slaves in Egypt. I'm going to bring you out a wealthy nation. He's not only going to set them free. He's going to bless them in the process. And he's going to multiply the blessing. God never changes. What promises are you finding in God's word today that you need to depend upon, that you need to know who he is? You need to go back to him and say, Lord, I, I really don't have much experience with you, at least not enough for this test. You need to hear God say to you, I am that I am. I never change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he will never leave you or forsake you. There's a third response that Moses had in chapter 4, verse 1. Moses said, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And here is a question of credibility. Really, Moses, did you just have some kind of a vision? You know, out in the desert, it got kind of hot out there. You know, everything got kind of wavy, right? And all of a sudden, you had a vision. And Moses is saying, why would they believe me? What's my credibility? Why should they listen to me? And he had a great fear of the unknown future. And God said, well, let me answer that question for you, Moses. What do you have in your hand? And he was standing there with his walking stick. And God said, take that stick and throw it on the ground. And he threw it on the ground and it became a big serpent, a big snake. Now, this next part is kind of creepy. God said, now pick it up. Hmm. Okay, it's one thing. I'm impressed it became a snake. Now you want me to grab it by the tail? All right, God. And he reached down and he picked it up and it became a stick again. And God said to him, let me, t let me tell you something else, Moses. I want you to put your hand inside your coat. Just put your hand inside your coat. Napoleon hadn't lived yet, but do, do the Napoleon thing, you know. And then take your hand out. And he took his hand out and he had leprosy. He had a skin disease. And God said, now put your hand back in your coat. And he put his hand back in and came out and he was clear again. His skin was clear. God said, Moses, what are, what are you afraid of? What is it that they're not going to believe about a God who can do that? And he said, now there's one more thing. And just in case they still don't believe you, okay, that you turn your stick into a snake and back again, and then you get, your hand gets uh, diseased and, and is made healthy again, I'll give, I'll give you one more. The one more is this. You take some water from the Nile, and I want you to pour it out, and it's going to become blood. It'll let people know that something's going on. It'll let people know that the power of God is at work. People will believe that you've met with God when they see him work through you. People that you work with, people that you go to school with, say, oh, I don't know that there's a God. How do I know there's a God? And the answer is, they see his work in your life. They see him changing you. They see who you were. 
They know that maybe one time you were unreliable. Maybe one time you were a person who lied rather frequently. Maybe you had a gross mouth. You know, maybe, maybe you were just like a, a, a walking, talking sewer every time you opened your mouth. And they noticed the change. And they noticed the change. How do you know that you've met with God? How do people know that you've met with God? You change. The work of God is shown through you. You believe God and he works in you and he works through you. Well, Moses wasn't done with his excuses yet. He had another one in chapter 4, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. That's a very strange thing coming from a guy who had been a leader in Egypt. He probably was trained in public speaking. It probably was not something that he hadn't done. But his confidence was shot, Moses. He, he just didn't know what he could do anymore. And he said, I've got limitations. And maybe he did. We don't have any clear recording here of any physical problem, but it, it says, I'm slow of speech and of tongue. If you have ever stood before people and spoken, you will know exactly what he's saying. You always feel like you're slow of speech and tongue. Like you've got something to say here, but it just doesn't come out. At least the way it comes out here is not the way you envisioned it here first. And so you have to work on it, and you have to, and have to train yourself, and you have to learn to communicate that way. But Moses said, I am not eloquent. A lot of people like this one. Uh, actually, I tried this one myself. Um, I, I was in college, and this was a strange thing. I was a speech major, uh, speech and drama. And one day I had a speech assigned to me to give in a class. And I was so terrified of giving a speech, of standing up in front of people and having them look at me while I was talking, that I scheduled a dentist appointment for that day at the same time. Clever, right? Do you think the prop didn't see through this one? I went to him and said, oh man, I don't know how I did this, but I scheduled a dentist appointment at the same time. I'm going to have a numb mouth. It would be, even if I could get here in time, I just wouldn't be able to talk. And he was so cruel. He said, well, we'll reschedule you. We'll give you another chance at it. Everyone who's asked to speak to anyone else always comes with this. Whether it's speaking to one other person about Jesus or whether it's speaking to a group of people, no matter what the size, you always come to this place and you say, well, who am I? I, I, I just can't communicate very clearly. Paul the Apostle acknowledged that he was not a great speaker. There was a guy in that day named Apollos who was a believer and he was kind of silver-tongued. Everywhere Apollos went, people said, ooh, listen to that guy talk. But Paul said, I'm not a very eloquent speaker. I don't speak fancy words. I just kind of lay the facts out there the way they are. Forty years in the desert had just changed Moses' view of himself, his self-confidence. And God wanted him to see himself in a different light. God wanted him to see himself in the light of his presence and not in the light of his own ability. Moses assumed that God didn't know his own creation. At least God answers that way. The Lord said to Moses, Well, who has made man's mouth? You say you can't talk, but... Who made your mouth? Uh, you, you say you're not good at this. Um, who makes a man mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I? Therefore, go. Stop fiddling around with the excuses. God does not make any mistakes. He is not limited by your limitations. 
No matter what your limitation is, no matter what you think it is, the insurmountable object in your life that will never allow you to do what God might ask you to do, you're wrong. He can do it. He will do it. I once heard a man speak. Actually, hearing him speak was very difficult and very painful. He had severe cerebral palsy. You had to learn, we had to learn to listen. As you listened to him speak, you had to hear him uh, listen real intently. You know, you have to focus so you could hear what he was saying. And he was speaking to a gathering of pastors. And he said, people told me when I was little, David, you should just trust in Jesus um, and, and that'll be your blessing. And when he trusted in Jesus, he felt that God was calling him to be an evangelist. And he told people that, and people said, well, David, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't aspire so highly. And he became an evangelist, and people began to come to the Lord. He had a desire to be married. And good-hearted people came to him and said, uh, David, it's a good thing you want, but let's face reality. You've got severe limitations. Don't aim so high as to get married. And he got married. And he wanted to have children. And good friends came to him and said, Ah, oh, David, you know, it's, you're aiming high again. You know, you're an evangelist and you're married. That should be enough. And he has children. And he said, in the, in the very thick, difficult to understand words, he said that, that uh, if God can use me, What's your excuse? What's your excuse? And, and you just saw all these men in this room who had had moments of great insecurity, like, just like Moses, saying, oh, well, I guess he could use me, couldn't he? I guess I, I, I'm, he might be able to use me. In John chapter 9, Jesus meets a man who was born blind. The disciples turn to him and say, well, who sinned? Was it him or his parents? And Jesus said, Neither. It wasn't either him or his sin or his parents' sin. He wasn't physically limited because of that. Jesus said he was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed. Whatever your limitation is, whatever the thing is that you think is stopping you from doing the work of God, he wants to do that, he wants to use that in your life so that his glory increases. Turn it over to him, whatever that might be. The last response of Moses to the calling of God was in chapter 4 verse 13 after he had exhausted all these other excuses and God kept coming back to him he said I made you I'm going to send you in verse 13 he says oh my Lord please send someone else have you done that? have you ever had the, gotten excited about what is going on somewhere that God is doing you say here my Lord send him <laughs> ever done that? Moses was doing it. He said, I, I'm ready. I have a, but he had a fear of failure. Many who will not try the unknown are afraid of failing. And yet we all know from watching life go on around us that it is usually failure that leads to success. You cannot succeed without failing. When Hank Aaron was chasing Babe Ruth's home run record, someone called to find out how many strikeouts he had. One thousand. 264. He struck out almost twice as often as he hit a home run. 
And life is like that. If you're going to do something for God, expect to fail, but know that God will carry you through the failure, and when he does, he is going to use you, and he will gain the glory. Now, something happened here. There's a turning here. Verse 14 says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. He says, All right, Moses, I've heard all your excuses. Now we'll come down to this. I'm going to give the honor, the privilege of speaking to your brother. And I want us to be careful here that we don't wear God's patience out. That we don't keep throwing up excuse after excuse after excuse until God finally says, you know what? I wanted to use you and I wanted you to have the privilege of seeing my glory worked in your life, but I'm going to give that to someone else. You'll still be a part of it, but it's not what it would have been. You and I are just like Moses in so many ways. We have a million excuses as to why we can't do this and why we can't serve God. But we have to remember that it is not the spiritual giants that God uses. God uses the weak and the powerless people. God uses them so that he gains the glory. And when he does that, he changes who you are. You see, something was burning in the desert. And that fire caught in Moses' heart. And when that fire caught in Moses' heart, it spread down through his family, through his nation, and down through the generations. And the same thing will happen with you. When something is burning in your heart, when the Spirit of God is on fire in your heart, you will become a different person, and you will do the work of God in a way you never, ever imagined that you could. Praise God. Glory to Jesus. In everything, give glory to Jesus. But we're going to get a chance to give glory to Jesus as we sing a song of praise. Let's stand, and as we close, I want to give you an opportunity, though, to be prayed for. Maybe God is talking to one of you today, and you've been saying, I've got, I'm, I'm 